Hello everybody, um, this is um, the Keen Atomic um, movie podcast uh, where me and Danny kind of compare f- uh, films of uh, similar themes. Um, so today is a, a bonus episode. Um, joining me as always is my co-host Danny. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, hello, hello. Um, so yeah, we, we're kind of doing something a bit different today with this bonus episode. Um, because we are, I think it's kind of safe to say we are kind of living in, in, in unprecedented times at the moment. Um, as of middle of June, the global pandemic is still going on. It's forced everybody inside. Millions of people worldwide have been affected. And certain governments around the globe are mishandling the crisis. Um, there has been increasing evidence of people that aren't of white ethnicity that are kind of being harmed more by the, glo- uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, combined with this, there have been protests recently in the news, I'm sure you've all seen them, of protests in the US, in Britain, uh, Germany, France, all over the world, um, calling for societal change. Um, kind of the catalyst was the tragic death of George Floyd and um, Breonna Taylor, as well as many, many, many other black lives that have been needlessly lost due to extreme violence from the police and systematic racism. Um, Not just an issue in America, it is worth saying, but also in the UK. What has kind of happened is that these protests and the pandemic have kind of coalesced together um, which has ended up creating calls for those in government uh, in in the US and and again here in the UK to for them to seriously look at the misjustice and systematic racism that that has no place and doesn't belong in 2020. Um, Bristol, the city I live in, um, as of June 2020, um, made international news last week uh, due to the removal of the statue of Edward Colston a slave owner and trader that had a massive influence on Bristol's infrastructure. Um, What has happened since then in the last week um, in America and in the UK is that it has kind of brought to the forefront the idea of social awareness um, and what is appropriate in the modern world. Uh, As such, there have been TV series removed due to outdated views and language. I'm not kind of going to give their example, say what they are but everybody kind of knows and um, the removal and subsequent discussion of the film we are talking about today so with all that in mind um, Danny what is the film we will be discussing today uh, this, the film which we will be discussing today uh, which is a film that Nick has hadn't seen before is Gone with the Wind, of course. Of course, I haven't seen Gone with the Wind. <laughs> we we found that out last week, so yeah. So yeah, but I, I managed to uh, rectify that, so I made Nick watch the film. Uh, and before I, I get his thoughts on it, I will give you a quick synopsis for those of you who haven't seen it. So, um, a manipulative woman and a roguish man conduct a turbulent romance during the American Civil War and Reconstruction period. So, we'll start with Nick's thoughts on this and then sort of develop um, 
evolve the conversation onto other themes. So Nick, what did you think of the film? So I'm going to be like objective as about this as possible. So I want to talk about the film as a movie first, um, as a fictional film with fictional characters and fictional events, even though, you know, it kind of takes place around real events before we kind of talk about the context and then the actual discussion that we're talking about today is its place in, in, in 2020. So I'm the, these thoughts to come are purely thinking about Gone with the Wind as a piece of cinema. So yeah so i'm trying to view it in this vacuum of this is a piece of cinema um this the love story between the two is extremely compelling i was worried because this is it safe to say this is a melodrama I think it is a melodrama. I was kind of worried that you might you might see it as as as, as such. I think Clark Gable himself has declared that it was a women's picture, and God God forbid that would be a women's picture. It is a bit of a melodrama, but at the same time, there's so much more. And I was kind of worried that you might not pick up on that, but I think you have. Yeah. So yeah, like the melo the melodrama. Like I was purely ready. I wouldn't say ready, but I was purely ready to hate it in terms of it being a melodrama. Um, what's kind of happened is that you get introduced to Vivian Lee um, as Scarlett O'Hara, and while at first, like this, the whole film is kind of centered around her. So yes. while at first she grated on me. I found her an extremely irritating character, and I'm sure that was purely intentional, judging from like how her character developed through the film. Um, her steadfast, strong-willed Scarlett O'Hara is is a heroine for the ages. I I, I was purely yes. amazed. Um, her performance is totally compelling um even even through the sections of the film where like her family her and her family are kind of on hard times in poverty after the war it kind of never truly felt out of place like her character never felt out of place um the even the even the shooting of of the yankee in in the house never felt out of place it felt perfectly in tune with what the character is and vivian lee's performance was just captivating um you know she she gets married three times all for her yeah. benefit um it's always for her like you know whether it be the fact that she's angry over ashley for going to the war you know she's doing it even for selfish reasons but she's getting married for her reason like to keep tara from falling into ruin like the reason why she marries frank or because she's the way I read it, she gave up on the hope of Ashley's return, which is why she how she ended up with Rhett. Well, um, a, a quite a, a small parenthesis, if I may. I think, I think, I think she marries Rhett because he's a very, very good kisser, and she might even. I mean, I think she. Lo I mean, you you kind of realize that she loves him, but she doesn't want to admit to herself that she does. Okay. Um, 
But yeah, we'll talk a bit about, more about that in, in a minute. But yeah, yeah, continue. Yeah, so she she honestly, Scarlett Hara felt like a woman who doesn't belong in that era. Like, you know... Yes. She, she's kind of too independent and too strong for that era, if that makes any sense. Um, just, um, it's purely like just a stereotypical view on how perhaps women were back then, but she... I think she was quite unique if you, if you, if you take like mid to late 19th century you compare women. Her, yeah, you compare her to her sisters. Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Which is a very good comparison. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's a strong woman for all the all the right reasons. Um, so, moving on. So, last week's episode, where we spoke about Red Dust and In the Mood for Love, um, I had issues with Clark Gable as an actor, if you, if you remember, if you listened to that episode. I do remember, <laughs> yeah. Um... So I in that film I found his character in that film to be an awful human being. I <laughs> I should have I, I even declared that he should have just been shot properly and left for dead. Um <laughs> and um what's her face? Oh, what's her name? I can't remember off the top of my head. Jean Harlow? Jean Harlow should have just ended up running that place to herself. So yeah. I I disliked him immensely in that film, and I even stated that I was concerned that this would affect future viewings of films starring him. Ah, uh, be prepared. But... Be prepared. I was wrong. <gasps> no. Um, How is it possible, Nick? <laughs> so Rhett Butler should have been my introduction to Clark Gable. So that's purely on you, Danny. Um, <laughs> okay, fine. But you know that Red Dust was made before Gone As, with the Wind. Besides the point, I think Gone with the Wind okay, should be the first Clark If you were to introduce me to Clark Gable, I think you did a piss poor job of using Red Dust as the first film. <laughs> okay, fine. I still I still think he did a good job in Red Dust. I I still think he, he redeemed himself at the end. Um I still but you are right, I think, as I mean I grew up with, with with Gone with the Wind, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, having having known Clark Gable from a very early age, I think he's great. He's, I think he's brilliant. Um, so but yeah, his, yeah, his his Rhett Butler um, is a man who is he's kind of positioned as an outsider. Um, he's kind of outside the conflicts of the time. Um, and yet he and you see him and you can see it in his face that he knows straight away he wants scarlet from the first time he lays eyes on her yep um he <laughs> he successfully manages to hold the line toe the line between charm and creep i mean smarminess is maybe a a, a kind of thing but he is so Oh, what's the word? Compelling and like capt. Uh, I've used the word captivating before, but like I don't know. Like you kind of just become transfixed by him. Yeah. Even if I'm not a woman, um, you can tell like he has ulterior motives straight away. Like you know that, but he doesn't. He doesn't take his eye off the woman that he loves and that he wants. 
and you know he is willing to put up with this is this is the thing that kind of got me about him is that he's just willing to put up with scarlet's crap like like he's just willing just to just yeah whatever like you you get over that marriage when you're ready i'm i'm you know i i know you're 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 just you know he's like yeah i know that was a fake marriage what are you doing woman come on be with me you know it's right um yeah and then until there's such a point that he ends up becoming broken by the death of their daughter bonnie yeah um and oh my god that part of the film was just one thing after another so she has the mis- she has the miscarriage bonnie dies then her sister dies and then he leaves and i'm like what it's it's just like one thing after another and i'm just like yeah it was like from depressed depressed to, to more depressed it's just yeah it's just terrible yeah it's it just one thing after another i wasn't happy that the little that bonnie died i could see it coming a mile off as soon as she was yeah. on that horse i was like yep yeah, she's gone but I, <laughs> um yeah poor bonnie poor bonnie mm-hmm. yeah i don't think that i mean the thing the idea is that she would have to get kicked around scarlet i mean uh before she realized a, a lot more before she realizes that she loves Rhett. i mean what Falling down the stairs, miscarriage, and then losing a daughter, and then yeah, her sister losing dying. Yeah, I mean, like that's some serious punches to take before you realise that you actually love the man that has been courting you for God knows how many years. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I knew the ending. The shot. I mean, I knew it anyway. Like, before, you know, it's so. I think everyone knows that ending. Yeah, um, it, it's 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 iconic. I'm not gonna quote it because I'll probably butcher it. But like, you know, that shot of him in the doorway. I could never. I knew the ending, and I knew the kind of sort of knew the background of the film that he was in love with her and stuff. But I could never understand until now why he would leave the woman he loved for so many years. And uh, and then watch, watching the film, I'm like, oh yeah, she was just awful to him. She was awful to him. I'm just like, what are you doing, woman? I know that scene when I remember my, I was watching it with my mom, and that scene when he finds the portrait of Ashley on 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 the carpet and he steps on it. Oh, it was heartbreaking to see his face. That after all these years of marriage and having a kid, she still has. Ashley's picture and she looks at it when he's not around. It was awful. Yeah, he's just yeah. Um, kind of. So yeah, like the love story between those two is is it's so central to the film and it 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 does work and that is the reason why it lasts four hours because <laughs> I couldn't figure out why this film is four hours long and now I kind of know why it's four hours long. Um, so, moving on, Melanie Hamilton, played by Olivia de Havilland, is that how you say her last name? Havilland, um, Havilland. Havilland. She, for me, was the heart of the film. Um, so she was the emotional core of the film. Her existence and devotion to Ashley, in my opinion, was what propelled Scarlet forward. Um, and then it was her death that we've already spoken about. It was her death that made Scarlet finally come to terms with the fact that she actually loved Rhett all along. Yeah. Um, and I thought of Olivia de Havilland's performance was just excellent. Like, it was like comparing it to, 
Beth Marsh in Little Women, the 2019 one, uh, directed by Greta Gerwig. You know, that, that character of Beth, you know, in that film is always perceived, you know, in other media, in other films, you know, she's always been like the weak one with like just there to yeah. die. Whereas like we've remarked in the past, you know, me and you have had conversations in the past that she is actually has a thing about her. She's not just there to die. There is actually more to her than that. And Greta Gerwig kind of understood that. And Melanie Hamilton in this film is kind of like the Beth Marsh. You know, she is just there to kind of just be the emotional core of the film, but then end up dying to catalyze the ending. But her, Olivia de Havilland's performance does more than that. It, it, it kind of, you know what I mean? It, it just, yeah, it's not just a damsel in distress role. It's not the weak woman's role. There's, there's kind of more to it. No, I think, I think it was a very good portrayal, and I'll talk a bit in, in a minute, but I'll let you continue with your notes. Yeah. Um. So if Melanie was the heart, then Mammy, played by Hattie McDaniel, and I know you've got quite a lot on Hattie McDaniel, it was 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 the brain of the film, if you put it that way. She kind of knew what was to come before it happened um yeah she knew more about scarlet than, than scarlet ever did about herself and happy hattie mcdaniel's performance i don't want to dwell too much because i know how you have a lot anyway so i do think her performance is utterly deserving of the best supporting actress oscar that she received so Absolutely. kind of i'm trying to sum up a little bit so like I said, the film is a love story and I think it is a love story for the ages and I do think it's one that stood the test of time. Again, I am purely talking about this film as a piece of film, as a piece of cinema in terms of plot, character, performances, you know, cinematography, music, all that. I can see its influence as a film in hundreds of movies since its release. Um, the cinematography is grand and epic and it never once feels unfitting of the story if that makes any sense the burning yeah. of atlanta um with the scene that followed with rhett and vivian talking against that orange sky is it was uh, it was utterly like haunting and tragic and and somehow just beautiful um the music adds to this epic and grand scale which really shouldn't be a surprise seeing as it was seen as it was uh, composed by max steiner um the great max steiner so i say that i see this film's influence everywhere and i, I honestly I, I do mean it i mean i recognize these iconographic moments in the same way like i recognize moments from the shining jaws and citizen kane um you know it it is a key text it it is a key text like those three um <laughs> this is purely on brand for me so just bear with me a minute one moment that kind of had me recalling uh, a moment from another piece of media was the scene of the endless injured and dying and dead men lying on the ground in atlanta with the camera seemingly going on for an age and then showing the confederate flag with the music and it's a really powerful harrowing moment but all i could think about was the simpsons episode bart's in a child which i think was like season seven season eight where homer <laughs> at the start of the episode homer brings back a trampoline 
Back to the House. And Dan Castanella's uh, vocal performance in that when he says trampoline, trampoline, trampopoline is just purely comic genius. But there's there's a moment after the the children are kind of injuring themselves that Marge speaks her concerns to Homer over the children getting hurt. And then the camera, Homer puts up a little sign saying caution, and the camera pans left uh, from Marge, from the trampoline to the to Marge, and then Marge looking over the children, and it pans over, and then it repeats that effect from Gone with the Wind, with an endless sea of children hurt by the trampoline, music <laughs> and all, and it yeah. is purely Simpsons and purely brilliant because it doesn't make any sense because their back garden is I mean, it doesn't make any sense if you don't know about it but it, once you do you're like oh that's where they, they got it from and that's what that's that's what it's brilliant about the, the Simpsons they always uh, I mean they parody but they don't really parody they kind of pay homage yeah it's it. an homage yeah I mean like I said if, if it's if it's worth being referenced in classic Simpsons episodes, and I'm talking season one through to season uh, 11, 10, 11, it must be good and it must be worth it. So you think about all the other Simpsons movie references that you can think of, um, and they're all classics. So as a film, this is one of the best. It is epic and grand and it is a scale it has a scale which very very few films kind of reach and i'm kind of putting it in the same company as citizen kane ben-hur and oh, don't laugh at me james cameron's titanic no not um, i know but there's probably going to be somebody on the other side of this who's listening and go titanic what well it was grand and epic and i loved it I was I was a teenager and I loved it. I mean, I, I could mean... be I could be purely controversial and add James Cameron's Avatar to that list as well. <gasps> hey, I mean, I, I give you Titanic, but don't don't push it, please. Um, I mean, so those like so I said, Citizen Kane, Ben Hur, Titanic, I think are kind of closest in comparison. I think there's a couple of other films I think you could probably under under that list. Maybe The Last Emperor, I think, is perhaps in there. Um, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci's Chinese film. It's absolutely magnificent. If you've seen The Last Emperor, I really, really thoroughly recommend it. I've seen La The Last Emperor. Uh, Lawrence of 80, Arabia. 88? Yeah, yeah I mean, there's like quite a few. Bridge, Bridge, Bridge on the River Kwai well, comes to should mind. We, should we just say anything by David Lean? Um, yes, so yeah, we could say Dr. anything Dr. by David Shivar, Lean. Dr. Yeah, Chivago yeah, and just... Bridget, yeah. Um, so like I said, like it's kind of in this company of epics, grand epics. And when I think of grand epics, my first thought is Ben Hur, straight away. I don't know what the nineteen fifties version. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there's, what? there's, there's. I think there's four versions at the moment. Yeah, like yeah. Big, big scale budget projects. But I, th- I um, think of the, I yeah. think of the fifties version of. of you know, I just I just see the poster of, of the wheels and the big letters Ben Hur and like that for me is like the epic. You know of what epics. I think of? You know what I think of when I see that poster? What? Life of Brian. <laughs> um. <laughs> that is also an epic. It is also <laughs> an epic. Um. Yeah. 
so anyway we're kind of like losing track of a bit, of a, a bit yeah sorry but... about that i just had well i mean you started with simpsons and i started with with um monty python so. <laughs> uh is this supposed to be a, a very serious uh matter that we're discussing yeah we will but we, it... yeah we we kind of we kind of need to kind of have this levity in this conversation otherwise it's just going to be a very somber episode and i don't want that to be that because there is a lot of levity to be had in this film like this film is is legitimately quite funny in places yeah um and i mean yeah i agree and most of the humor i mean it it most of the humor doesn't always come from from mammy i mean she's very funny but she's so witty and she's just adorable every minute she's on that on, on the screen I thought Rhett, Rhett was the funniest one of the She's lot, really honest. funny. She's really funny. Yeah. I mean, he's he's got the best one-liners, um, hands down. And I've actually got a, I've actually got a small list of them that I will I will try. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to try to imitate him because I can't. Um, uh, but yeah. So just I to will kind mention of, them. Yeah, just to kind of like wrap up really. I mean, I rate all my films. I try to rate all my films that I watch on Letterboxd, the fantastic service of Letterboxd. Um, I try to, like I said, I try to rate all the all the films that I watch. I haven't rated this one, and I don't think I will. And there is a reason for that. And but we will kind of get on to that other part of the film and the whole reason for this conversation a bit later on. So that's kind of me done with kind of thinking about the film as a film. Um, but Danny's got some. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there is a reason why you've chosen this film, and or there, there's a, a, well, it's another reason. There's kind because of, we were going to want to talk about this one day. Like it was like we even spoke about it last yeah. week. We were like, oh, we have to talk about Gone with the Wind one week, and I was trying to think of an epic film that you hadn't seen to kind of crown it up against, but. <laughs> So, I think it's I think it's important that we have this conversation now, and it's it's a standalone film, and it's it's I think most of looking on on social media, most of the the, the major publications have 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 got have had articles and content about this film, and I think the the conversation is open, and um I know I kind of sort of decided to jump on the bandwagon, but I was I was also excited about the fact that you hadn't seen it. And I think it was a really good opportunity for you to see it now and join the conversation and join the conversation. I, I definitely um, agree. I think like uh, we would have got, I mean, if, if everything kind of haven't have happened as it like it happened, we would have got round to this one day. And yeah. there is a very, very good reason for that, isn't there, Danny? Like there's a very, you have a very interesting background with this film. I do. I've done a quite a bit of research, and I will. I'll get to it point by point. Uh, but I will start with like my personal experience with this film. Um, uh, I it's one of my, my my mom's favorite films. I grew up with it, and I loved it. It was on television um, almost every summer, every winter. It was kind of like it was not on repeat, but you could always find it either on TCM or other other uh, TV channels. Um, was this, was this in the, Romania? Like in, in Romania? Yes, yes, oh, wow. yes, yes. Yeah, that's where I grew up. Um, yeah, so it was, yeah, it was um, always on, on, on television. Um, sometimes not even late at night. Uh, and sometimes not even with ads. I think with ads, you would have gone to around five hours easy. 
Um, and I think, yeah, it's, 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 it's a big film. Um, I, I loved it, even though, yeah, it is almost four hours long. It's exhausting. I mean, you, yeah, it is I mean, funnily, funnily enough, as well, maybe not funnily enough, as a, as a kid watching it, I just, it, it, that part of it, um, with like the sensitive part of it, it, it didn't strike me because I didn't understand it. Uh, but then I read Uncle Tom's Cabin and it kind of made sense. But, um, yeah, I never thought uh, as a sanitized depiction of slavery in the South, I was kind of too mesmerized and obsessed with, with seeing a strong, like you said, a strong female character portrayed on screen with such energy and, and passion that um, Vivian Lee emanated. She was, she was a goddess in our house, household. Um, and also this film is, is one of the reasons I've been obsessed with fashion history and period dramas ever since. Um, there are some videos on YouTube dedicated to the costumes in Gone with the Wind. Um, and I think designer Walter uh, Plunkett has done an incredible job. I will share one of those videos in, in the show notes. Um, but yeah, suffice it to say, the period costumes in this film just blew my mind. Um, rewatching it now, the, and, and yeah, the intertitles, of course, just give me this sickening feeling and it made me, you know, made my stomach turn every time since I was able to read, read English. Cause I've seen this, I think I've seen it about 25 times. Um, yeah. And those intertitles have not aged well at all. Um, watching it, it made me think. Because they talk a lot about being a gentleman and what it means to the gentleman in the south, it makes me think that words that gentleman have gained a new meaning when presented in this context. Um, someone with no clear occupation but who is rich because they exploit someone else. Um, at the same time, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is a mirror to of the society at a given time and quite an accurate one at that um so people were racist and sexist both in the 1860s when the film is set and in the 1930s although perhaps less sexist in the 1930s because you you kind of see that they allowed this film to happen which is quite a feminist film or and at least in the 1930s women weren't sent for a nap after barbecue I mean, like, that in, the, in the 1930s, though, like, pictures, cinema pictures, I mean, I, I swear I've done some reading on this for, for my degree, but I, I swear I read somewhere that the majority of the audience back then was female. Yes, 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 so, yes. So, um... Yeah, so they kind of tried to cater for, to women, um, which is why, like, we, we've discussed before that Clark Gable was like, oh, this is, this is a melodrama, this is a women's picture. Um... So they were trying to cater for the, for the female population more, which is why it's so female-oriented. Um, and there are many, many other films like that um, in the 30s and 40s. Um, but yeah, I think this one is one of the best ones out there from that, those times. Um, and I'll, moving on to the incredible cast of characters, I think... I think it was just yeah you had you had small um parts played by really really good characters like thomas mitchell was really good 
even though he's quite racist, but everyone in, in, in it is racist, more or less. Um, but yeah, Scarlet, uh, like you said, is a force of nature in all her feminist glory. She's deeply flawed, but she's a survivor. You can't really help liking her, despite the fact that she's just ruthless. She has no scruples. She's a fighter through and through, and she's determined to succeed as a businesswoman in an era where this was unthinkable. And I think she's also charming, and I think that's what got to you, although she, you got a bit annoyed by her at the beginning. She's charming, and she knows how to use her charm to get what she wants, although she does lack, lack tact. And um, she does com come across as, as silly um, and foolishly stubborn, but she's also very ambitious. She's prejudiced, um, and she does. I mean, you have to you have to think that she's she's the product of her environment. Um, you 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 said it. Vivian Lee was brilliant in the role, um, and there's an entire saga around how she got the role. Um, so if you want to know how a Brit British stage actress managed to get the role coveted by the likes of Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, um, Paulette Goddard. Um, virtually everyone who was anyone in, in, in Hollywood in the late 1930s. Just, um, I'll, I'll share it in, in the show notes. There's, uh, I, I, I keep uh, referencing her, but she is one of the best uh, vloggers out there. Uh, Be Kind Rewind, she, her channel is incredible. And she has a video on, on how Vivian Lee got the role. Um, and I'll, yeah, I'll share the link in the show notes. Um, moving on to Rhett Butler, um, I think he's pretty much the only male character who lives in the real world. Um, yeah, you did say that he's 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 not he's nonconformist, uh, and I think I think you're right. He's yeah he's I th I see a lot of of Rick Blaine in him. It is hinted from the beginning that he's a bit bit of an outcast, but down deep you know he has a heart of gold. He's he's not putting up with any shit um and he 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 did say that oh the the only cause i'm interested in is is red butler's cause but at the same time you know that he's gonna he's going to cave and he's going to do the right thing when, when the time comes sure he's made profit from the war but he does care about people and not just the white people and i loved his relationship with mammy i think it's one of the most incredible funny relationships in and and i'm going to quote i'm not i'm going to give the quote but i'm not going to do the thing um he he says mommy's a mommy's a smart old soul and one of the few people i know whose respect i like to have and i think that is that says a lot about Rhett as a character and um, the fact that he cares about her mommy and he considers her his equal um, he's probably the only white character in this film that he does, that does, and that I yeah I really like Clark like Clark Gable in this. I thought he did a really good job, alternating from being total cynic to a romantic and ultimately a realist with a broken heart. And he does have some of the best lines. Um, all we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. I like that one. I like that one a lot. Uh, yeah very very relevant i think as well i know i was just like yes you go right you tell them 
Uh, <laughs> I love that when when he um, he bids for um, Scarlett to, to go for a dance, uh, and she's dancing with him the whole night, and she's quite um, concerned about her her reputation, and he says, "With enough courage, you could do without a reputation," <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. Uh, and when he courts her, he goes, he goes, you should be kissed and often and by someone who knows how. And of course, the frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, which was voted one of the best lines in movie history. I, don't, I think it was number one or number two. It was quite up there. I got I got an on the spot idea. I think I think yes. we should do a bonus episode one day where we do our top five or top ten each of our best lines in movie history i think we'll come okay up, i think we would come up with two very very different lists and i think it'll make a very interesting interesting yeah. episode so this is an on okay. the spot on the spot idea that for you listeners that we've got we, we, we're planning as we go um, here making stuff up yeah. as we go so Absolutely. yeah I, th- I, I think that would be a good good a good thing to do yeah i'll Let's find my I'll, I'll find my post-it note and write on my post-it note right now do it do it, do it, do it. don't let it slip away <laughs> Um, yeah, moving on to Melanie, um, I, I didn't feel for her at first. I didn't feel she was well-rounded. I thought she was quite one-dimensional, all, all that is good and pure in the world, you know, boring. I think you see, as, as the movie progresses, you see glimpses of real strength and sometimes even cunning. And it makes you realize that she may know... Scarlet again, like you said, Mammy, better than Scarlet knows herself. I think she knows that Scarlet is in love with Ashley, and she's been trying to get to sort of steal him away from her all along. But she probably realized before Scarlet does that Scarlet loves Rhett and not Ashley, uh, which wouldn't be hard because Scarlet is always the last one to find out. I mean, she's very good at at doing like the the pragmatic stuff, but Scarlet is not very she she lacks finesse she's very blunt and she's just yeah um and olivia de Havilland, i think well she's great and she's still alive god bless her <laughs> i think she's brilliant i think she's brilliant playing melanie um i have to say something about ashley yeah <sighs> i kind of, i kind of avoided talking about ashley because <laughs> i i didn't I I feel yeah. like I have to. I have to. I don't know. I was just like, oh, what do I say? Because I, I had to think about him for a second because you just, you don't know what to do with him. He didn't want to, I mean, Leslie Howard didn't even want to be in this film. And uh, David O. Selznick tried very hard to convince him. And I think he offered him co-produ- uh, uh, co-producer um, credits for Intermezzo, which they made subsequently. Um... And he was 37 or 38 at the time, and he was supposed to play someone who was 20 at the, at the beginning. And you see that he's, it just, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, as a character, I think he wants to be noble, but he's a coward. Bec- he wants to have ideals and noble principles, but he's kind of too weak to tear himself away from the, the tradition of oppression that he's very steeped in. Um, I mean, he, it, someone says at one point that, you know, the Wilkeses have always married their cousins. And you don't really see that he loves Melanie because he's in love with her. He loves Melanie because that's a tra- tradition of, of him and, have, and what he has to do. So he puts the duty of, of family before 
anything that he feels because you kind of know that he's passionate about he, he maybe he's not in love love with with uh, Scarlett he might be in love with her but he's too afraid to admit to himself um so yeah he and again he objects to Scarlett using convicts for the mill business that she runs and then he said he would have freed the slaves after his father passed away war or no war do you know what that sounds like to me do you know what that line reminded me of it reminded me of that bit in in get out where where bratley whitford turns yes, around yes. and says i, I would have voted, voted for obama for, uh, the third time the third time <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly I'm, what i thought it, of when he said it that. is it is so true you're like oh please come on Give me a break. You didn't even oppose uh, your arranged marriage and you would have sit, yeah, freed all the slaves. Oh, give me a break. Uh, I would have voted so, for Barbara a third time. That is so, oh, that has, so that has the same energy to... It does. Uh, ...of him saying that he would have freed the slaves if his father, father passed or not. I mean, oh. come on, man. I know. That's exactly... Yeah. So I, I, just, I just picked up on that and I was like, that's totally that. <laughs> yeah, it's just... And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, guilt-tripping um, Scarlet into not using convicts because it, it's inhumane. Uh, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't think that, you know, slaves are human. And moreover, he goes to the political meeting, which is code for the KKK meeting, and tried to kill the black folks who attacked Scarlet earlier. Was it? Um, I, 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 I got a question about that. So, yeah. like, the shanty town people that actually attacked her weren't black like they they weren't they, they weren't it was basically yeah, I, I, that's one I of those things i was confused I, about for what i can gather the shanty town was basically poor people and people that yeah. uh, uh, were you know the dredges of society that weren't so that's why big sam was there and like the people that attacked her were white but, so when they At say the a political time. meeting, I understand. I understood the fact that it's it's totally code for the KKK. But like, and I think in the book it was the KKK. If I if I it if was I did my research. yeah. So yeah. But they so they changed it a little bit, and it kind of At makes the same that time, less problematic. No, no, it was. I think it was basically paint sort of painting everyone with the same brush because Shanty Town was they just put everyone in the same sort of whole so it was like well there's black people there so the black people must have attacked her they didn't even ask questions they just went for it okay all right so it was it was it was the prejudice it was the sort of again jumping to conclusions like oh yeah it was she went through it and it it was yeah because i looked and it was indeed the, it was it was the white folks that attacked her but again the black people get the blame because why not <laughs> So, let's talk a bit about Mammy. Yes, yeah? yes. So this is this is like I, 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 I'm shameful to say that I know nothing. So I would really, um, I'm really appreciating this. So, so I, I'm just going to start with a quote again from I think Scarlett says it at one time, and um, which prompts Brett to say that. She's a, a smart also, and she's one of the few people that whose respect he would like to earn. Um, and she says, uh, yeah, uh, basically there's a conversation between Rhett uh, and Scarlett, and Scarlett refuses to give a, uh, to buy Mammy a gift from her honeymoon. 
because she says she called us both mules. She says she could give our we could give ourselves airs and dress dress like race horses. We were just mules and horse harness, and we didn't fool anybody. And I thought that was really, really good of of Mammy to have said that because you kind of see how she, how clever she is and how she can breed people. And you said that you said um, that she's the brain of the film, and it's true. Um, she's yeah, she's like the voice of reason, and she knows what everything happens before it happens. Um, it was kind of sad to to I think. It, people need to read Mammy beyond the made Mammy stereotype. Um, and I think because I think Hattie, what Hattie McDaniel has done was taking the stereotype and give it warmth and integrity and, 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 and brains. Um, she, of course, won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, the first African-American to do so at the 1940 Academy Awards. Um, and of Mammy, Hattie said, I loved Mammy. Uh, I think I understood her because my own grandmother worked on a plantation, not unlike Tara. Uh, which is interesting because if you think about it, this was made in 1930, well, it was filmed in 1938. Um, if, if, if Hattie McDaniel's grandmother was, worked on a plantation, and I think I read somewhere that Hattie's father was also slave or just first it was a freed slave so if you think about it it was not it was still in people's um consciousness it was still in people's memory that the the, the civil war happened and it's it's quite yeah it was, it's still quite recent in people's memory yeah, living, living, definitely still in living memory at that point. It was just, yeah, it was just, yeah, it's very fresh, and I think, I think Hattie McDaniel did a very good job, and she, she did it justice, making her more than just a comic character, more than just uh, a servant uh, or a slave. She made her like almost a, a mother figure for Scarlet. Um, and yeah, and I think she said she said at one point, if you don't care about um, how about family, I do. Um, no, if you don't care what folks says about this family, I does. So if you don't care about what people say about us as a family, I do. Uh, and I, I think later on when they moved to Atlanta, when um, Scarlett marries Rhett, I think it was it was uh, Prissy played by Butterfly McQueen, which I'm I'm going to talk about her in a minute. She says, does it mean that we're rich now? So having her, having them being sort of part of the family, um, it, it, again, it's, it's, it's quite of a, a tricky situation to put, to put them into, like, well, are they servants or are they, are they part of the family? Because they, they get treated like both. And I think what Mammy does is, is she's forcing herself into being part of a family uh, and by taking some liberties, uh, but... Because she cares, she gets away with it, and I think there's been some commentary about um, in when the film got released in South that you know it was not realistic to have a, a, a maid talk to the lady of the house like that. But I think I think Katie McDaniel pulled it off. Um, I have a few um, uh, a bit of information about Hattie McDaniel. Um, she was a vaudeville star, she was an accomplished singer and dancer. Um, 
later in her career she had her own radio show called Viola which was made into a TV show in 1950. Uh, the radio show was um, rather controversial as it kind of perpetuated the racial stereotyping. I think Viola was supposed to be this maid um, and I think yeah I think the stereotype of the maid that looks after white families was perpetuated well into the 50s and 60s yeah um, that's uh yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah especially in the south south states yeah um, yeah uh, she was very good friends with clark gable um and she convinced him to attend the uh, atlanta premiere i mean this is one of those things that kind of infuriates me so you have this film and you decide to have the world premiere of the film in atlanta i mean i know most of the film is set in atlanta but it's yeah so because Clark Gable decided she was he threatened to boycott the premiere when he found out that, that it was it was a segregated state and she couldn't go um so she convinced him to actually go and promote the film um she was also quite criticized by some African Americans for playing a, a in a support in a racist film not supposedly but a racist film um, and she responded that she would rather make $700 a week playing a maid than $7 being one, um, which I found quite heartbreaking to, to see that this, these two were kind of her only option, options at the time. Uh, considering the fact that she was, she started as a vaudeville star and she was a accomplished singer and dancer. Um, and yeah, uh, she had a, uh, an interesting life and, and. Um, of course, she won the Oscar for um, playing Mammy, but after that, I I don't think I think she her career kind of plateaued because there weren't enough roles for her in Hollywood, which is rather sad. Um, the revisionist new Netflix TV show Hollywood um, is has has her as a character portrayed by Queen Latifah. Um, I think it's an interesting um, take on on like an alternative version of Hollywood in the 40s. Um, I would recommend it just for just out of curiosity to see what would have happened if if people if people if white people would have had the, the, the courage to support black people in Hollywood. Um, yeah, so a bit of a sad piece of information which I found, which I think is important. Uh, so Hattie McDaniel was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was filming um, Beulah, the TV show in 1950. And I think she only did a, a couple of episodes of it um, and died. She died of breast cancer at the age of 59 uh, on October 26, 1952. Um, she... she in her will, she wrote, uh, I desire a white casket and a wa white shroud, white gardenias in my hair and in my hands, together with a white gardenia blanket and a pillow of red roses. I also wish to be buried in a Hollywood cemetery. Hollywood Cemetery on, Ho on Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood is the resting place of film stars such as um, Douglas Fairbanks, Rudolph Valentino, and many others, I'm sure. Um, the Hollywood Cemetery owner at the time of Hattie's death, Jules Roth, 
refused to allow her to be buried there because the cemetery practiced racial segregation and would not accept the remains of black people for burial. Her second choice was Roseville Cemetery, where she lies today. So, yeah, they have a sad story for Hattie, but I don't, I don't think she, I think what, I think what this, this film has done is kind of raised her profile even more. And I think that's what, that's why we need to talk about it. I think like she is, you know, at the end of the day, she is, she is immortalized by being yes, first African-American to win an Oscar. So, yeah. Um, and um, about, about that, about the Oscars, I just feel like she... She was the first one, but it took so much. It took 50, 60 years. So the next Oscar, the next woman, the next African American woman to win an, uh, another Oscar was um, Whoopi Goldberg in nineteen ninety for Ghost, Best Supporting, of course. I don't even think. Uh, I think Jordan Peele was he? Was Jordan Peele? No, it was Spike Spike Lee was the first black. Uh, director to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Director, wasn't he? Or Best yes. Picture for Black Klansman. And Jordan Peele was the first black screenwriter to win for Best Writer in Oscar history. I mean, we've spoken did about he win, Did he win for Get Out? He did win for Get Out, if I remember rightly. Oh, excellent. For Best I'm Writer. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think, yeah, I think... Um, you know, we 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 will be talk. We will be having a conversation at some point close to the Oscars, if they happen, um, yeah. <laughs> about about the Oscars. And I think this 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 conversation over you know, black actors and and um, African American writers and stuff like and directors is a worthy conversation to have. And uh, you know, like I said, Hattie McDaniel, you know, she is she has been immortalized by being the first african-american woman african-american full stop to be to win an oscar so yes yes at the end of the day like even though it did take 60 odd years for it to happen again you know she was the first and i you know yeah absolutely um but yeah i just wanted to say that i don't think mammy is is as much a caricature as people might want i think she, i think what had to mcdaniel was so her performance was so multi-layered that you you believe her to be part of the family through and through. I think when it comes to verging on caricature, we have Prissy and most of the other house servants um, who, who stay who stay on after the war after they've become free. And Prissy, she's she's quite annoying, isn't she? Just just a little bit. Uh, that scene. <laughs> That scene where she's trying to get Rhett to to get a uh, uh, yeah um, you can't even hear what she's saying because no, she's so whiny. So yeah, it, it hurt my ears. I know. Um, on her, on Prissy, um, actress Butterfly McQueen, who portrayed her, said Prissy should have been slapped more often because she was horrid. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. I know, and I also found an interesting quote from um, Malcolm X, which I will not say, which I will share in the show notes. Yeah, we will, we will, we will add this quote. It's a really interesting quote from Malcolm X, um, which we will add in the in the show notes. Um, we do think it's important to have that quote. Um, yeah. But I don't think yeah. either of us are kind of comfortable with with saying it, so it's it's going to be there for for you guys to read it. 
Um, I do believe, I mean, as, as annoying as, as Percy was, I do think Butterfly McQueen was good in it. Um, I think, I think w what she was asked to do, she did very well. And I think her character was supposed to be the sort of comic relief um, caricature of, of the subservient um, um, slave. Um, but uh, I, I did a bit of research on both her Butterfly McQueen's career and Hattie McDaniels and again it kind of hit a glass ceiling there was like no didn't really move away from the stereotypical seven roles um, I mentioned Beulah the TV show um, I think they worked together on the show I know Butterfly McQueen uh, also worked on the show but I'm not sure if they worked at the same time um, because Hattie worked, only started in one or two episodes after which she had to drop out and be replaced by um, Louise Beavers because he was she was diagnosed with breast cancer, like I said. Um, I'll talk a bit more about Louise Beavers in a minute because I think it's important. Um, Butterfly McQueen is a very interesting character. Um, I found quite a few interesting facts about her. She left her body to medical science. Um, really? She Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, she um she received a bachelor's degree in political science uh from New York City College in 1975. She was seven, She was 64. Um, of course, after after being in Bula and and not getting enough parts that were meaty enough, um, she she retired from acting. Um, and she was quoted as saying, um, quote, I didn't mind playing a maid the first time because I thought that was how you got into the business. But after I did the same thing over and over, I resented it. I didn't mind being funny, but I didn't like being stupid. Um, which is kind of like what Prissy is. She's kind of stupid. Um, but, uh, another... Yeah, she was she was also an atheist um and lived a very frugal life and died at the age of 84 after the fire after a fire broke out in her modest cottage um in augusta georgia um and one of my favorite quotes of hers um as my ancestors are free from slavery i am free from the slavery of religion um sort of justif justifying the fact that she is she's an atheist and I thought she was she was incredibly uh, intelligent um, and I think another fact which is kind of like a sad fact but I think it's it's relevant to our conversation today um, in, in 1980 she sued Greyhound bus lines when she was assaulted in a bus station by a guard who thought she was a pickpocket she was thrown roughly on a, onto a bench um and she had several of her ribs damaged she was 69 at the time um after several years of litigation she was awarded sixty thousand dollars only sixty thousand uh, dollars yeah i mean it, it was 1980 it wasn't it, it for a for inflation it was still not that much um okay so i think I, I kind of skimmed because there was a lot of information online about both Butterfly McQueen's lives, life and, and Hattie McDaniel and I think um, I think they both deserve accolades over accolades and I think what this film has done was kind of like again open up the conversation about them and her, their performances and 
their um, careers. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about production now. Um, there again, there are a lot of details about this super lavish production. He said an epic of of, of grander scale, maybe Ben Hur. Um, books have been written about this, and documentaries have been made. I'm, I'll do my best to just highlight the most important parts that I thought. Um, it was funny that you mentioned Ben Hur. Uh, I was I was I was going to sort of talk um, refer to the 1925 version, which I think was much more lavish than the 1950 version. Um, the estimated production cost for costs for this for Gone with the Wind were 3.9 million, and at the time only Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ, 1925, and Hell's Angels, which is the lavish Howard Hughes production, uh, which was like a money pit, um, had cost more. Am I right um, in thinking that this is adjusted for inflation? I'm going to look this up on 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 box office yeah. Auto now. But I'm I'm thinking that adjusted for inflation, this is the highest grossing movie of all time. It is. It is. Like it if, is. You, it was, if, if think... you yeah, if you adjust it, obviously, like even you know. yeah, if you adjust it, I think it's still the most yeah adjusted for inflation. I think I saw it quite recently, uh, and I think it's in it's in the video that I've uh, I'll show a link to Jesus. in the show notes. So this yeah. is according this is according to to Box Office Mojo. Um, so it is the highest grossing film of all time, top lifetime adjusted gross with one point eight nine billion dollars. Um, Jesus. As, so this is in 1939. Okay, the amount of tickets, yeah. estimated number of tickets sold, are 202 million 286,200. This is in 1939. Now, number two, perhaps to the surprise of nobody, is Star Wars, the the first one from 1977. Right. So Gone with the Wind, 1.89 billion in 1939. In 1977, Star Wars. The juggernaut that is Star Wars, 1.6 billion. Wow. And it, Gone with the Wind, apparently estimated number of ticket sales sold an extra 30 million more than Star Wars. Um, wow. And then, like, to put it in context, I mean, so where is, where is the, yeah, so the actual highest grossing film uh, without kind of adjusting for gross at the moment is, um, I think it's is it still Avengers Endgame? Is it, or is it Avatar? Sure. Did they change it to Avatar? I can't remember. Hang on, I'm gonna have to look this up. Hang on, this is bugging me now. Sorry, I'm I'm totally ruined <laughs> your ruined your thing. No, that's absolutely fine. I was just going to say that it, it you have to you have to think about the fact that um, since its release in 1939, it was re-released many times over. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, like, Avengers Endgame, which came out last year, that made 2.7, well, $2.8 billion worldwide, um, which is an insane amount of money. But then Gone with the Wind has, like, completely blown that out, out, out of the record, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's pretty pretty insane. Even Titanic didn't come close from 1997. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, it is pretty so, yeah. insane um, but I, you have to bear in mind the fact that um, the film is based on a very very popular novel as well and I will mention I will, I will talk about the novel in a minute 
Um, but I wanted to start talking about the production with with like the cost and also um, you've you referred to it in your notes the so the first scene to be shot was the burning of the Atlanta depot. Um, I read that it was filmed on the 10, 10th of December 
2001 Space Odyssey. You know, that won't the sets won't be there, but they kept the miniatures from both of those films and they kept all the artwork and stuff. Whereas, like, I think back then in Hollywood, like, it was very much like, oh, we've we've produced that film, we need to kind of get rid of this to save space. And I know. I mean, and it's, it's listen. A bit, yeah, it's a bit yeah. like uh, upsetting, really. When but... you think about when you think about the fact that almost eighty or ninety percent of of all silent films made are lost because they repurposed the film, they melted it down and they repurposed it. Um, you think of the sets, and you're like, well, the set the set didn't stand a chance, really. If they didn't care much about the, the actual film, I mean, Cleopatra, the Theodor Barra film, is lost, and I would have loved to have seen that. There's only like twenty seconds of it. Yeah, no, um, I, I, but, I, def- yeah. You know, I definitely agree. I mean, like, you know, we we are we only really have Nosferatu because some random guy in a in a projection oh, house don't. decided decided not to hand over the copy. That's the only reason oh, why we have God. that film. Can we imagine? Yeah. Losing, just, like, I, yeah, losing, oh, like, no, please, that part stop. of history. Like, it's, there's, I mean, there's, there's an alternate tale of history of us not having Nosferatu as oh, a don't. part of a history. Can you imagine, can you imagine, like, if they, if they no. turned out with, with Fritz Lang's Metropolis, for example, can you imagine that film being lost for the ages? I mean, I've, I, yeah, okay, I haven't seen it, but we're crossing that bridge when we come to it. But like, <laughs> even so, like, its importance as a piece of cinema is so, like, you know, because of, like, imagine the bombings and stuff, like wiping out, like, all yeah. of the the German expressionism films of the twenties. You know, the bombing we did of Germany in in World War Two. You know, like, it it is un it's unthinkable. And but there is that old kind of alternate history of like. What if this yeah. film would survive? I mean, you know, you're 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 a massive Buster Keaton nut, and I'm sure there are hundreds of Buster hey. Keaton stuff and Charlie Chaplin stuff that, you know, like and silent comedies that are, are, are lost. And it I is. I think most of them have been found. Um, most of them have been found and trying to be restored. I think there are a couple of of um, um, Roscoe Arbuckle, um, Buster Keaton films that have have sort of been lost but most of even to this day like movie like movie production like production companies still don't treat their films i mean the most the two most recent examples i can think of i know we're kind of losing track a little bit but it's all kind of connected i think with what we're trying to talk about with in terms of like legacy in terms of films and stuff which is all yeah. kind of interconnected with with gone with the wind but like um paramount the, the the two films that paramount have have done one was uh 1983's the keep directed by michael mann michael mann shot a three and a half hour to four hour film and that film it only exists now in an 80 minute cut and it is forever forever incomplete because paramount didn't like the version that michael mann had shot so forced him to or didn't even force him but they pretty much cut that film down to 80 minutes and threw away the negatives we will don't, never we don't. will never ever see that version of michael mann's the keep and then 1997 this is this is 1997 paul ws anderson albeit not the greatest living filmmaker of all time Paul W.S. Anderson directed oh. um, Event Horizon. You thought I meant Paul Thomas Anderson there for a minute. Yeah, please don't, my poor heart. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no I'm just saying. Like, so Paul Paul W.S. Anderson directed a film called yes. Event Horizon, which is 
one of it is one of the best um homages to, to Ridley Scott's Alien. That film, there is an R-rated version of that film. However, like he shot a version of that film which is extremely horror and it, it we only know about it in stills and in stories that the cast have told, you know, um Sam Neill, uh Lawrence Fishburne and Jason Isaacs. Uh, no, is it Jason Isaacs? I can't remember. Chris Isaac, I think. Um, they talk about this film, this version of the film. That film in 1997, Paramount cut those parts out of the film and then lost the negatives. And now, like, they're looking now, today, looking for those negatives or a part of that film in a version that may exist on VHS somewhere. VHS somewhere to stick into an ultimate version of the film, the lost version of Event Horizon. And it's insane to think that a film's legacy, like even even somewhere as recent as 1997, I'm I'm sure there are even more recent examples. I'm not even going to get started on the fucking Snyder Cut, but and David Ayer and all that kind of stuff. But I was gonna I was gonna mention uh, the Magnificent Ambersons, but I'm not going. I mean, I've mentioned the Magnificent Ambersons, but I'm not going to talk about it. But yeah, like I think even to this day, like legacy in Hollywood is like still something that isn't fully grasped. And I think the the closer and closer we are getting to this age of cinema, uh, streaming and digital, the closer and closer we are getting to losing legacy and history, as it were, um, which is kind yeah, of a scary I... thought. And like I yeah. think with with what I'm trying to get at is with the example of Gone with the Wind burning down the sets for the sake of you know filming a scene, I think it it is kind of linked in with this Hollywood's. Um, basically what they do in terms of just moving on to the next thing yeah yeah short-sighted like just moving on to the next thing and not thinking about legacy and and i think it's something that you know even i think we're on track i think we're on track when it comes to pointing out the flaws in hollywood and i think this film does that very very well um it's it's a brilliant film um from the production point of view and the storytelling but it also points out the flaws, and I think it's it's very, yeah, it's it's quite poignant. Sorry, I kind of sidetracked us a little bit. You had you had a lot no, more. You fine. had a bit more on on I the do. background. Um. So yeah, so the fire was cost over twenty five twenty five thousand dollars, and yielded a hundred and thirteen minutes of footage. It was so intense that Culver City residents jammed the telephone lines, thinking MGM was burning down. Um, you have to bear in mind that by, at this point, um, Scarlet hadn't been cast yet, so no one knew who was going to play Scarlet. Um, but her stunt double was um, Aileen Godwin, Goodwin, Goodwin, um, and um, Lila Finn. So it was two people. While Rhett was doubled by veteran stuntman Yakima Kanat, who was perhaps the most famous stuntman in the history of Hollywood, and Jay um, Wesley. Um, you mentioned the music and how incredible it is because it's made it's it's composed by Max Steiner, of course. Um, but the fu- the funny thing is that he was given only three months to compose the film, the the music. And you have to bear in mind that nineteen thirty nine was the busiest year of his career. Um, most people say that what well, most film buffs historians think that nineteen thirty nine was the best film, the best year for film in Hollywood. Um, 
and I think Max Sander might have just written um, the scores of most of those films. Um, I think he wrote the music for 12 films in, in that year. So he was busy. So in order to meet the deadline, um, he sometimes worked for 20 hours straight and took benzodrine pills to stay away. So when you listen to that score, you think about him being pilled up to the eyeballs to stay awake. Um, and there's almost three hours of music in that film and it apparently it has the longest film score ever composed up to that time. Um, there is a documentary, um, I can't remember what it's called, uh, um, made in 1988 about the production surrounding um, Gone with the Wind, which was a, a saga in itself. Um, IMDb gives um, three directors credit. The only on on the actual credit um, is given to Victor Fleming, um, but actually there were um, scenes from George Cukor who was fired. Um, still that were left on, on the film. I'm not sure which one was what. Um, but yeah, George Cukor was fired. Um, and reportedly one of the reasons that um, David O. Selznick, the producer, fired him uh, was because um, Cukor, who was a homosexual, was unable to properly direct the love scenes between Red and Scarlet. And then he was replaced by Macho, director Victor Fleming, who we talked about in our last episode about Red Fest. Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, so also he was dismissed from the production. I think he continued to privately coach both Vivian Lee and Olivia de Havilland. This is also, this is, I think it's a rumor um, because I think David Rosesnick had um, a quite a good working uh, relationship with George Kuka. Um I've read somewhere that he w- Kuka was unhappy with his own work and he wasn't satisfied with the script. Um, the script itself had many issues um, and there have been lots of rewrites and I remember in that 1988 documentary um, a complete shooting script doesn't exist because there were so many rewrites and sometimes daily rewrites. So you show up as an actor on the day on the set and they give you a different script and you had to memorize those lines before the camera starts rolling. So that's kind of what happened. Um, there was there was a bit of chaotic production because, yeah, you had you had Victor Fleming, you had George Cukor and I think there's a third cred, uh, directing credit, uh, Sam Wood. Um, and also, um, I can't remember who's correct hang on a second um so the writing credit is given to well of course margaret mitchell um who wrote the novel on which the story is based uh and sydney howard who's uh, wrote the, the screenplay but apparently some of the story is had been re- re- rewritten by um the famous um hollywood scriptwriter ben hecht um but again we don't know what what belonged to whom um and i think there's lots of people that got fired uh on this production i read that cinematographer lee garms who um got had uh, won an oscar for 
cinematography for Shanghai Express, uh, was fired a month into production before, because his footage was deemed to be too dark. Um, and then he was replaced by Ernest Holler and Ray, um, I'm going to butcher his name, Ranahan. Um, so, yeah, so you've, you've spoke about that famous um, crane shot um, when uh, Scarlett searches, searches for Dr. Mead when um, Melanie starts um, getting, gets into labor. Um, that is quite an iconic scene. Um, I think there was supposed to have been um, 1,600 suffering, dying Confederate soldiers on that strip, um, strip of land. Um, was it like a rail tracks? I think it was rail tracks. Um, but to cut cost and comply with the union rule, um, 800 dummies were scattered among the 800 extras. Um, and according to this documentary, uh, in addition to saving money, the use of the dummies was partially because there was not enough extras available due to the fact that four of other films were filming at the same day. Um, so yeah, it was quite a busy lot on, on the MGM lot. And some of the extras have threads that are connected to the dummies' hands. To make them move a hand um, while they're filming uh, so that it looks like people were there sort of waiting and, and suffering uh, also the, the famous crane shot when you see sort of panning up from scarlet onto the um, confederate flag um, apparently that was that Luton's idea um, and you know Dan Luton of cat people fame he had previously been David Osselsnick's assistant editor and went, of course, as we know, to produce a string of classic horrors throughout the 40s. Um, a f interesting fact that I found out about the film, um, Vivian Lee worked for 125 days and received $25,000. Clark Gable worked for 71 days and received over one hundred and twenty. $1,000. That might, wouldn't that have something to do with Clark Gable's star standing and the fact Vivian Lee was a British actress, stage actress though, wouldn't that have something to do with it? Yeah, okay, fine, but I mean... I'm not, I'm not justifying it, I'm just like trying to see like the reason why that might be. I mean, Hollywood still to this day doesn't pay actors yeah. and actresses fairly, so but you know, 1930, part, yeah. 1939 it's not really a, an unheard of practice, I would assume yeah and but funny enough speaking of unheard practices the film does pack the pass the bechdel test um according it to does, which... doesn't it yep i don't just think it like the sisters talk about yeah like, the sisters house talk about other things the yeah. house money tara money uh business and war and they don't talk about men huh so yeah um, the film won uh, eight Oscars, a lot among which Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Editing, Best Cinematography. Um, what else? Um, I think I think that's it from my production notes. I didn't want to get into too much detail. I think there was enough detail as it oh, was. I think you've done amazingly, uh, though. Like, I think should done a really, really good job. we talk about your um take on on why we should talk about this film today? 
so yeah we yeah so honestly like your background production stuff obviously it's all fascinating um but at the end of the day like the reason we are talking about this now today and you know is because of what is going on in 2020 um like i said at the beginning of the film uh of the podcast we are talking about this film because it has been placed in context of what's going on um purely by accident or on purpose and i'll get onto that in a second so on the 13th of june um reports came out that the film had been removed from warner brothers owned streaming service hbo max which is like warner brothers version of disney plus or netflix or amazon prime mm-hmm. um and kind of whilst the streaming service has, itself has a different model compared to disney plus so like disney plus what they're doing is they pretty much put in all their films and all their tv series on and then leaving them there see what netflix does netflix their their own production stuff you know obviously they got rights and licensing issues but their production stuff and amazon same they, they're, they're on there and they stay there whereas what warner brothers have been doing uh which has kind of come to light recently is that they even though they own hbo max and they own this vast library of titles and tv series and such they have adopted a revolving door policy so films like for example i think it was wonder woman the you know the 2017 film um superhero film uh starring gal gadot and directed by oh my god that's that's embarrassing i've forgotten her name um i'm just sorry i'm gonna have to google this now this is this is me google this is a, a, a historic moment i'm googling who directed wonder woman um you should know this i, I mean, should I know this i've not seen it Patty Jenkins. So yes, so the Patty Jenkins. Was it Patty directed, Jenkins? It was Patty Jenkins. Yes. <gasps> I should know this. Oh, I'm, I'm so ashamed. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I mean, I should know it more because, like, I'm a big superhero nut. But anyway, um, so HBO Max have adopted, and Warner Brothers have adopted this revolving door policy with their titles, um, which has kind of shocked everybody because, you know, surely if you owned everything, you'll just stick everything on there. But yeah. Anyway it kind of came to light that they had removed gone with the wind um kind of in the wake of the protests and not anything to do with this revolving door policy that they've adopted um so when questioned this is a quote from a hbo spokesperson hbo max spokesperson um who spoke to variety so it's a bit of a quote here um Gone with the Wind is a product of its time and depicts some of the ethnic and racial prejudices that have, unfortunately, been commonplace in American society. These racist depictions were wrong then and are wrong today, and we felt that to keep this title up without an explanation and a denouncement of these depictions would be irresponsible. These depictions depictions are certainly counter to Warner Media's values, so when we return the film to HBO Max, it will return with a discussion of its historical context and a denouncement of those very depictions, but will be presented as it was originally created because to do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed. If we are to create a more just, equitable and inclusive future, we must first acknowledge and understand our history. Which I think is... So there, there, there. I have two points of view with this this removal. 
Um, first off, it is yeah okay, fair play. They are acknowledging that that they have a title which is counter to the values that they want to portray as Warner Media, albeit they've kind of what have you. Um, so, so what this removal of the film has done um, from the platform has done is kind of made the film a focal point of conversation. Now, this is this isn't a new thing. Corporations' main aim in marketing is to keep control of the conversation. So, yeah. do you think about how HBO? We'll use HBO as an example. Think about how HBO released an episode of Game of Thrones every Sunday. Okay, they controlled the conversation every week because the conversation from people who watch Game of Thrones was about that single episode of Game of Thrones that aired the week before, wasn't it? Yeah. Whereas you think about an example with Netflix with their binging policy, they stick all these episodes on at once. Once people are done with it after a couple of days, that conversation has passed. So it is kind of key for them as a brand to hold on to a conversation of, of a piece of media, especially for, for TV series and, and film. And with this, they've certainly done that because due to the removal, purely because of removing and addressing this fact, they have now centered the conversation around Gone with the Wind. Um, yes. This isn't just um, a case with Gone with the Wind now. It is also, funny enough, my mate, my, one of my friends uh, showed me uh, yesterday um uh we we all know that little britain the bbc tv series has been taken off um bbc iplayer and netflix and or, you know the Britbox, i think it was called um and because of this uh dvd sales have spiked massively prices of little britain and come Di come fly with me dvds have spiked on ebay um <laughs> Which is interesting, because if you go into CEX, you can pick up Series 1 of Little Britain for 50p. And they have hundreds of them. But Because obviously no shops are open at the moment. Everybody's yes. buying these things on eBay. So ah. it isn't just the case with Little Britain. This is also happening with Gone with the Wind. Uh, DVDs and Blu-rays have been reportedly selling faster on Amazon due to higher demand of Gone with the Wind. Um, That's interesting. And articles all over the web, we've spoken yes. about them, have splashed the new stream because this hbo max streaming service is very very new um of they course. are so it is a sort of free publicity this, this is what this is so, this is marketing one-on-one yeah so this is this is a very I, I will say this is a very cynical viewpoint but it is also somehow kind of a truthful way of looking at the world nowadays but it is also, it, I think it is important to kind of you think about this at least as some of the reason why this film has been removed. Um, from a financial standpoint as well, it makes sense that companies would jump on the, the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement because it helps their brand. Think about how companies, media companies in, 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 in particular, have used pride month you know we're in pride month at the moment yes, 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 yes. think about how they're using pride month and using repurposing their logos with the rainbow flag it's all marketing it's to help their brand it's to you know and it's a very yeah. very cynical viewpoint but it it's one without merit you know that you know do you think it's without merit though what do you mean do you think ultimately is is without merit to have this conversation about Gone with the Wind because I think no, no, that's no, no. what I, it's done. 
That's yeah, what but... it's done. I don't understand. I mean, I understand the, the, the reasons might be very cynical, but ultimately the result might not be. No, no, I think I think it's a I think it's a bit from column A and a bit from column B. I don't think it's singular one reason or the other. Which so I just wanted to I wanted to propose this because I found it very interesting to think about it in this terms because whilst I think it is totally well I will get on to you know that in a minute, but I think it is perfectly justified to be having this conversation about gone with the wind i think it is long overdue yes. and all that but it also you cannot ignore the fact that there is a hidden agenda behind all of this There's, so, oh, there usually is one there usually is one i mean we're talking about massive massive corporations who are running the world we're talking about the media which is the one of the biggest powers in this world and as as people who live in the uk know they run the show they are the ones who run the show they are the ones who tell governments what to do yeah we we me me and danny are quite similar in our political viewpoints i mean the audience should kind of figure this out by now um so like it is no you know surprise to either of us when we both of us believe that there is a one percent of the one percent of the one percent of the one percent that pretty much control governments and fund yeah i don't parties. think that's i think that's yeah i think that's kind of more or less proven yeah unfortunately. i know i know but they're like it's not a, it's not a it's not a very popular held belief by the general public. i know i know anyway we're kind of we're kind of deviating a little bit <laughs> so when so i think i said when discussing the film like i've done like we've done like we've have done we've spoken about our opinions on the film as a piece of film we've talked about it in terms of its context and its background in terms of its production and i think it's very 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 valuable thinking about this film like that um it, it is a very very powerful piece of art um it is influential and it is a key text in cinema history however there are two other films I wish to use as examples. So, first, we've we've, we've I've, I have double checked with Danny that she knows she knows she she knows and she's seen these films. So, yes. first off is D.W. Griffiths' The Birth of a Nation from 1915, which is a silent war drama that glorifies the KKK and attempts to justify the extreme racism that is shown on screen. But, I mean, I can't, yeah, but. Despite its horrific subject matter, the film is often recognised as a Rosetta Stone of cinema. And it's true. It is, it is, there are filmmaking techniques that are in that film, in that three-hour piece of racist trash, that are key techniques that are still copied to this day. Okay? It is, it is a Rosetta, like I said, it is a Rosetta Stone of cinema. It is insane. Oh. Um, might I might I make a small comment? Yeah, no, yeah. If if um, yeah, if uh, Deborah Griffith, go for I, it. I I can't remember off the top of my head now, but I remember read. I can't remember where I read it or where I saw it. Um, all the techniques in seemingly invented by D. W. Griffith. Um, I think recently there've been there's been proof that they had been used by by some French filmmakers earlier. So it it is arguably very important film in terms of 
like technical achievement um but at the same time you could you could also think of it as taking it with a pinch of salt and say yeah well he he made an epic but at the same time he did a lot of damage with that epic yeah yeah i mean i i, I do i mean it is no piece of art has ever been original maybe apart from maybe george melier and the lumiere brothers um you know like and, and yes, edison yes, yes. edison like you know no cinema no no cinema is ever truly original i think with the birth of nation it was it was screened at the bloody white house for crying out loud um yeah. whereas History like whereas, lot, yeah oh, whereas shit. like those french films that you refer to and i think i do i i think i myself have read that article uh that piece where that is from um you know i honestly doubt anybody apart from people in france would have seen them maybe dw griffith have seen yeah. them but the general public had probably probably knows and probably has seen the birth of a nation more than these french films that you're referring to which is why that i see it as the, this rosetta stone because it is it is seen by lots and lots of people and then then so on and so forth copied um secondly is lenny reifenstahl's triumph of the will which is the 1935 nazi propaganda film which for obvious reasons is deeply 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 problematic it is a pure propaganda machine for nazi germany and for adolf hitler However, the film is an extremely effective tool for studying the power of images. It is Lenny Ralfenstahl took what the Soviet montages, montages of, of Eisenstein and uh, Vertov and... Pradovkin. And yeah, Pradovkin, and did something more with it. And she created... Yeah, she created this piece of cinema which is incredibly fascinating the it is that it, cinema that it is it sorry is. it is that yeah. it is yeah it, she's i think she was incredibly talented yeah uh despite her political uh leanings um the, the it is cinema the shots of the nuremberg rally for example made its way into star wars okay yeah. with the depiction of the empire that has how influential that film is however so both of these films that i've used as examples are key texts in the history of cinema okay but we should not be talking about them as pieces of cinema in their whole they should be always be spoken about in their context always and gone with the wind is the same it is of its time the south is romanticized it just it's yeah. just it's so romanticized the depiction of the slaves isn't realistically shown at all mammy and pork um yeah okay pork are shown as freed slaves that come back to work for Charlotte because they love her family so much um so at the start of the film i would like to see a, a like a percentage of of that happening how many freed slaves stuck to their to their families yeah um at the start of the film so i mentally prepared myself for this depiction or in the, this this film as just being one of those things so you know like our discussion last week with red dust i had a lot of issues with the the, the racism on show 
but we both of us kind of put it down to being just one of those things with Hollywood at the time and you know we are going to have this conversation in a few weeks time um, when we talk more about Orientalism in detail however the opening crawl had me pretty disgusted so this is the opening crawl there was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the old south here in this pretty word gallantry took its last bow here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair of master and slave look for it only in books for it is no more than a dream remembered um yeah so this is it, it makes it seem it like it's my a fa- skin cur- curl. It makes it seem as though this is a dream, a fairy tale. This is a pure, wistful look at the past. It's as though life was simpler and better back then. The Confederacy was depict is depicted as a misunderstood and wrongfully obliterated by the North. This is a view of the South which still is held to this day by certain people that is what's in America. So frightening. That is what's so frightening for me. And it's it's super frightening so to think about that. This is like I said, this is held by certain people in America and probably, in all likelihood, the current president of the United States of America. It is no surprise that when given the chance to program some films for TCM back in the eight, I think it's the eighties or the nineties, he chose this film as his favorite film. It is mm. a romantic view on a, of a pure America, one that has been wrongfully stolen and wrongfully yeah. given away and lost to time. This view has no place in twenty twenty. So, HBO Max and Warner Brothers were right and correct in their removal of this film. And they are right to address this film and to add context to it later on. It is sparking a conversation over what is appropriate and provides context for those that wouldn't know it if they had just seen the film on TV, DVD or VHS or Blu-ray or streaming. Okay? Yeah, I think, yeah. It is a work of cinema, and for that it should not be ignored. But, like Birth of a Nation, like Triumph from the Will, this is a film that needs to be contextualised and commented upon always. The separation of, of art from the subject and separation of the art from the artist is a very, very difficult one for general audiences to grasp, but it is the right thing to do. And I think HBO and Warner Brothers are doing the right thing whether it be for the cynical reasons I do, I do, I said in the past, or whether it's for the actual pure reasons, you know, that we, we want to believe that they're doing it for the right reasons. Well, yeah. So, yeah. That's kind of my thing about this film. It is... When I found out... When, when I watched this film, I... It did not surprise me at all that president 45 i'm not going to say his name because he's Don't not say worth his name. he's not worth it he should 45 be is, 45 he, is enough 45 he should be he he should be in november deemed to the dredges of history never to be uttered again and 
it is no surprise that this film is his favorite film and it really hurts me because this film has some genuine beauty and genuine magnificent magnificence about it i put it in the same category as ben-hur citizen kane and james cameron's titanic in terms of what an epic film is and yet it is also deeply troubling and deeply deeply problematic on the scale of birth of a nation and triumph of the will and it is it is very very weird to have that as a film it is the highest grossing film of all time and yet it depicts slaves as a romantic uh lark that families used to hold on to and treat with reverence and yet yeah, this was happened. far 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 removed from the truth we've well you know we we've we we've done our history we know our history you know we've done our history classes and stuff you know but then it, speaking in terms of of, of of cinema you know we've either seen um 12 years of slave the most recent probably the most recent example of of slave um yeah, yeah slaves in in cinema um you know jesus. and yeah exactly jesus and I even, think I've even... watched it recently because it's it's such a oh, heartbreaking, but it's it's such a really made film. Even the, even um... the exploitation, even the exploitation of Django Unchained by Quentin Tarantino does not shy away from the aspects of slavery on show. I mean, yeah. Tar- Tar- give Tarantino his credit where credit's due. He does not shy away from what goes on. He does the same with Inglorious Bastards with the Nazis. He never ever shies away from what is actually the truth. He just he puts his exploitation spin on it, and uses the chance to have a slave get the dream of fighting back and killing the masters. You know, in this in the case in Django Unchained, Leonardo DiCaprio, mm. as they should be, as they should have been dealt with. But history was never written that way. History is never as pure as it was written that way. History is ugly. History is horrible. History is utterly, utterly... Like, I can't even think of an an awful word to come up with. It is a disgusting thing to look back on where on what has gone on in the past. But it's one that we should be looking at especially in 2020 we are in the year and 2020 and we are having this conversation we're, yeah we're still having this conversation we're still and i think this i think the problem generally speaking not just about this film i think the problem starts with 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 nationalism i think that's where the problem starts yeah i mean it, it, it this film does that it, it holds on to that nationalistic point yes of view, yes and it does yeah. not let go and yeah it, and it, the, the problem of the other he's not me he's not like me he's the other and we should hate the other because we don't know them so we have to hate what we don't know i mean it, the film them. the speak the film speaks of abraham lincoln perhaps the greatest american okay i'm saying that as a fucking brit for crying out loud the greatest american to ever live as though he is a tra- a traitor a coward a man to be lynched and that is yeah i think she says i think scarlet says at one point um tonight i'd i'd dance even with abraham lincoln if he were here yeah so something like that like even with him he was like the worst of them all i'd i'd dance with him um it's just 
I don't know how to, I, I was watching it again these days and it, you, you have to understand the context of, 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 of the era, it, the film, the, the novel was written in. And also, I mean, I don't I, I, I find it hard to understand that since that time, since 1865, people in, in America haven't managed to move on. I find it really, really hard. It isn't just America. I just want to point this out. I mean, we, we always... No. Like, it isn't just America. I mean, with, with my country that I live in now is still dealing with nationalism and a racism. I mean, a couple of... Literally, yesterday, for crying out loud, there were um, Britain, Britain first nationalist fascist nutters um, fighting about something about the the so these are these are legitimate fascists that that that, that had the nats that used the nazi salute when trying to protect the statue of winston churchill i we we are this is the age that we're living in they are fighting against black lives matter movement which is a legitimate movement which is the right thing to be doing because at the end of the day nobody should be wrongfully prosecuted on nobody should be treated differently just because of the color of their skin and we are saying this in 2020 and I, I i'm really concerned now that i'm kind of getting on my soapbox a little bit and getting a bit riled up but <laughs> like the, the thing that is important like it is important for me and and i think for danny to use this podcast um because this is our platform you know we have created this platform yeah. to talk about movies I, yeah and despite um, how probably quite small our audience is we still have an audience to talk to and we really really do wish that you are on the same wavelength with us but we do feel it is worth talking about this case even if you do feel the same way and if you don't feel the same way i mean why I did think... you vote why why you know i i'd be really curious to know what why is this point of view coming across so i mean context is everything and like I said, it's I've true. I've tried I've tried to place this film in terms of what it means in 2020, but you have you have a lot on its context. I have a no, I don't have that much on the context. I have a few things on on the context because I didn't want to sort of delve too much into and try to I didn't want to try to find excuses for Margaret Mitchell and her uh, story and how she wrote this novel, um, or trying to find excuses for the producer David Oselznik or um, trying to sort of understand from from the southern point of view. Um, the film is clearly very clearly racist and there's no discussion as to how how bad it portrays the south and how it romanticizes and it over sanitizes it and how it just talks about the Yankees as as the plague uh, when the fact they're the same nation uh, and talks about they uses the word darkies, which I found deeply offensive. Um, but that's not the worst thing. It's it, yeah, it's just it's it's almost like the black people are are just there to be helpful and nothing else. They don't have a life of their own. Um, I found yeah, so I found an interesting thing about Margaret Mitchell. Um. I think she wrote the novel between 1926 and 1929. Um, of course, her depictions of black characters are, are controversial. Um, 
Her own views on, on African-Americans were influenced by her childhood experience of racial tensions between the um, affluent area of Atlanta called Jackson Hill, where she grew up, and a neighboring um, area called Darktown. Darktown. Yes. Uh, which was an African-American neighborhood remembered as a, quote, hellhole of squalor, degradation, sickness, crime, and misery, end quote. Um, I didn't know there was a race riot in Atlanta in 1906, but apparently there was. Um, there were recurring rumors of black men raping white women, which caused this um, Atlanta riot. I should I should look more into it and um, find out more about it. Um, apparently, when her, Margaret Mitchell's family didn't take any part in an anti-black riot, but these events took place close to her home, and she vividly remembers them to adulthood. Uh, I said before that the Civil War was still in living memory to some some people in the nineteen twenties and thirties. She, she uh, both of Margaret Mitchell's grandfathers were Confederate uh, veterans, um, so it was it was kind of fresh, and I can imagine if they if if she if they lived when she lived, um, they might have told her various stories that made it into the book, um, but um, it's just yeah having the. African-American male regarded in Georgia as, as quote, black beast rapist is inexplicable. Um, but at the, at the same time, seeing it in the context of the 1930s, you kind of not find an excuses, but you kind of, oh, I don't know how to put it, you, at that point, even today, black people haven't actually managed to move on from 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 slavery because they haven't been given the opportunity. So it's kind of like a vicious circle. They they are kept down. They are kept the lowest lowest of the low, and then people expect them to 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 raise from their ashes to do what? Um, they are still seen as as um, pickpockets and. And rapists even though they might have not done anything we've discussed the uh, shantytown scene earlier where even though the the white folks attacked scarlet it's the black folks that the, these guys went went after um i don't know in 1938 1939 things weren't much better than in 1906 i don't think Considering that still most, I think probably all of them, most of the U.S. states were segregated. Um, even in L.A., Hattie McDaniel was, was famously sat at, at a segregated table during the 1940 Academy Award ceremony. She couldn't even attend the world premiere of the film, which took place in Atlanta because of the segregation. Um, I think the KKK is alluded in the novel um, as the organization to which Frank Kennedy turns to after Scarlett is attacked. And I think it might have appeared in earlier script drafts. And I found a, it was it was removed from the final shooting script, which wasn't really a shooting script, it was like a data script. 
Um, but I, th I found an interesting quote from David L. Sesnick, the producer, um, telling uh, the screenwriter Sidney Howard in 1937 um, that he had no desire to remake The Birth of a Nation. And, um, quote, I do hope you'll agree with me on this omission of what might come out as a, an unintentional advertisement for intolerant societies in these fascist-ridden times. What strikes me about this is that even though David Osersnick was aware of fascism rising in Europe in the 1930s and what was happening and um, how sensitive this film was to be, it strikes me that he didn't try harder to make it m more true to form, more true to the reality of, of what the South was like, instead choosing to romanticize it to the point of ridicule. I think maybe like there is a difference in terms of what was going on in the 1930s, um, you know, in Germany and in Italy compared to what <sighs> happened. I think there's a difference in terms of America's, I mean, yes. I, I think in terms of America's point of view, in terms of what was going on, because of I think about this time, segregation, like you said, segregation was still a thing, and racism is still a massive thing. But you know, was still a massive thing back then in America, still is now. But fascism was like, you know, we can't show this, so the KKK can't be shown and can't be done this, can't be all that. And again, like the Confederacy as well, I don't think it, it kind of there was that. I don't think they were aware of the association between, you know, the Confederacy, what that stood for, and the parallels between that and, and Nazism and fascism in, in Europe at that time. I don't think it was something that was aware um, because it was happening as it was happening, if that makes any sense. like. I know, but I mean, having to use the word intolerant societies and then present a very, very intolerant society... Um, it's just a bit, yeah, to me, it's just a bit hypocrit hypocritical. Well, they had to make um, money, didn't they? So, you know. That, yeah, you have to bear in mind the fact that they have they have just come out of the Great Depression. Yeah, the the book was massively successful, I'm assuming. Was it, was it a successful book? It was a very successful book. Yeah, so they had a successful um, book, successful rights. They had a film starring Clark Gable on its way, like, you know why you know like this is a potential to, to make they, they didn't want to rattle but at the same time they didn't so they didn't want to rattle um you know um anybody they they didn't want to sort of um upset anyone who who was important because they wanted to make them their money back the um david ossessing had bought the rights of gone with the wind um but at the same time it was it could have been a, an incredible opportunity to actually make something more i mean i'm not saying it's not mem memorable because it is because of the, the love story but it could have been you know it, he could have had a, an opportunity to to um sort of make a statement with this film do you think that was um, possible in 1939 hollywood yes um yes it was, and I have a very good example for that. Uh, and I kind of, I made a note of it. Um, and I kind of wanted to discuss it on, on our, maybe a future episode. There's, there is this film called Imitation of Life, 
uh, released in 1934 and is a very good example of a film which not which doesn't depict racial bias all that much um although it kind of does but at the same time oh how could i explain this so the the the, the 1934 version of *Invitation of Life* has been remade in the 1950s, um, with, uh, but I'm I'm going to talk a bit about the 1934 version, just as a as a comparison to uh, *Gone with the Wind*. Um, this *Invitation of Life* is about um, her name, uh, played by this businesswoman played by Claude Colbert who builds her empire of pancake mix she makes mixed pancake um whose recipe is given to her by um by a black woman called delilah um played by louise beavers louise beavers is, was another um black actress um kind of like one of her main um rivals of hattie mcdaniel so i think when when the role of Mammy was being cast, um, Hattie McDaniels had to fight Louise Beavers for it. And I think she, uh, Hattie McDaniels met David Osselznick in full Mammy costume to beat her rival, Louise Beavers, for the part, which she, success which she su successfully did. Um, but I think Louise Beavers was also a very, very good um, actress um, at that time. Uh, and in this film, uh, she's presented as as a quite an, a different like she she's not she's not a servant for, for for once. She's a friend with a white woman, and they are business partners. Uh, and she's a mother. And what in the film she's she she does say at one point that she doesn't want money or fame, and um because they become quite rich selling the the pancake mix. Um, so they have a very successful business and then um, Claudia Colbert wants to share everything uh, with her but she doesn't really want it she just wants her daughter to be um, to be sort of close to her um, and at this point I have to say that her daughter is black but she passes for white because she looks white and she kind of refuses she kind of uh, rejects her origins and that's kind of the story um, and it's it's a very very good film about race and I think it's a very important film uh, and I really want to discuss it in more detail I've just kind of given a bit of an outline and I think Louise Beavers is a very important uh, performer in the in the 1930s as well um, also Freddie Washington who plays her daughter in the film who plays her as someone who doesn't who rejects her or origins um, and she's a very important um, activist uh, but I think again, it could have David Osterling wanted to play it safe, and I can't, I understand why, but I think he, he kind of missed an opportunity. I mean, you know, um, that's kind of why the context I had. Uh, I think yeah, it could have, it could have. I mean, in like, if if the nineteen thirty four film like um, Imitation of Life could be made, a, a less a, a less romanticized romanticized version of of Gone with the Wind could also have been made but then, with enough but then courage. Like, think about think about it like get out okay which is a fantastic film ab about race relations in america 
and the Obama era politics and stuff because it was written in Obama era America. That film was released by Blumhouse. It wasn't released by a major studio. It had to get funding from Blumhouse and it cost $5 million in America. And yes, okay, yes. it was a massive success, but this is 2017 that it took a black screenwriter, a yes. black director to get this film to be made. So I don't, like, I know, I understand that, you know, like, there is an example of imitation of life, which I've never heard of before, but like, I don't, I don't see it surprising that, you know, even to this day, Hollywood just doesn't but really... imagine if imagine if someone were if imagine if someone had taken that chance yeah i know again we're going down the alternate history route aren't we like if only yeah if only gone with the wind was actually showing slavery for how it would be shown but then if that happened do you think it would have been the success that it would have been it I probably mean, like, was it, it probably would, wouldn't have been like would the women However, would the women had... go out and see it they'll be like oh yeah stay for clark gable clark gable was an absolute dream but my god the slavery in it oh can't deal with that you know it wouldn't work so you know i i yeah that's what i think personally yeah i yeah fine um but again it's it's a vicious circle because if if you don't break it nothing's gonna get better so it was because that's why in the 1930s people were still separated and people still thought oh well fine if if my mother thought that blacks were inferior why shouldn't i think that no yeah okay yeah that's kind of what my point was um it, no one actually dared to go like hang on a minute this is not okay why why don't we give why don't we give these people the opportunities they deserve because they're people too and we've oppressed them enough for 70 years centuries since early 18th century yeah okay um but yeah that's kind of um all i had i mean so i kind of want to yeah. wrap this up with i mean so we've been talking about how problematic gone with the wind is and i kind of want to take this opportunity to give to our listeners examples current day examples i've got two and maybe danny will come up with one i kind of sprung this upon her but like I, I want to bring two examples of two pieces of art um cinema well one one actually is not really cinema one is a tv series and one is an actual song um that i feel is important to watch and listen to in terms of what is going on and in terms of dealing what is happening in america and what is happening worldwide so i'm going to give my examples and then danny if you can if you end up thinking of one just just say but uh, um, so the first thing is um, there is a huh, rap group or rap slash hip hop group called Run The Jewels and they released their fourth album last week, um, literally out of the blue, they released their fourth album. One of the, the rappers is a guy called, um, his, his stage name is Killer Mike and I think everybody would have seen his eight minute call, I wouldn't say call to arms, but it was a very much a passionate speech about the position of america and black uh blackness in america that he made in atlanta um it was on the the eight minute videos on twitter and if you find it I, I thoroughly recommend watching it because it is absolutely captivating and it perfectly captures everything that is that they're, that they're angry about the, the 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 generational 
wrong and and um that has that's happened to 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 black you know to, to african americans um so there's this song on this album it's like the fifth or sixth song on the album called walking in the snow um which come to think of it when i was listening to the song made it it, it is it is about white supremacy it's about whiteness in america and the first verse is fairly standard in terms of what they're trying to say and then killer mike he does his verse and i'm just going to read this as though it's a verse of, of a poem um but when i first heard this i literally stopped what i was doing and gasped um my friend messaged me and said have you heard this verse because he was in tesco's and then literally stopped what he was doing in the aisle to literally just take a minute and take a seat so i i will send uh, danny i will send you the song after the podcast but i've written i'm going to read this this out so the way i see it you're probably freest from ages one to four around the age of five you're shipped away for your body to be stored they promise education but really they give you tests and scores and they predict in prison population by scoring who the lowest and usually the lowest scores the poorest and they look like me and every day on evening news they feed your they feed your fear for free and you so numb you watch the cops choke out a man like me until my voice goes from a shriek to whisper i can't breathe that line was written last mm. year and wow and it it yeah jesus i and it uh, i i i'll send you the song and it is truly utterly powerful and the whole rest of the verse talks about how you know you sit there in the house on couch and watch it on tv and most you gives a twitter rant and call it a tragedy but truly the travesty you've been robbed of your empathy replaced it with apathy uh, it it is like it's so true and his verse ends with um dick gregory told me a couple of secrets before he lay down in his grave all of us serve the same masters all of us nothing but slaves never forget in the story of jesus the hero was killed by the state um and it this like they said this verse this whole album was written last year was written in the last year couple of years or so and it is it could have been this could have been written last week this could have been written well, the day after george can... Floyd. Was, was... I don't think I can I can top that anyway, so yeah. I I think I'll pass when yeah. with the examples. I don't think I can top that. So the other example I have, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna link the the song "Walking in the Snow," and I know lots of people rap and hip hop isn't their thing at all, but I I think it is truly powerful to listen to that verse as it was spoken and not to hear me say it. So I'm gonna link that in the show notes. The second piece was from a TV series that came out last year um so damon lindelof um of lost of leftovers um he was appointed by hbo a few years ago to adapt or to produce a sequel to the uh to the graphic novel watchman and what he ended up doing was ignoring the Zack snyder film of 2009 and trying to he says remix the original comic book series so while the series is technically a sequel it takes place 34 years later after the events of the comic in this alternate reality so what he does the series is focused on events surrounding racist violence in tulsa oklahoma in 2019 there is a white supremacy group 
called the 7th Cavalry that has taken arms against the, the Tulsa Police Department. And there's a wow. whole thing about um, police. Uh, they end up having to conceal their identity with masks to prevent the 7th Cavalry from targeting them. And they end up having, you know, um, superhero names like Sister Knight. And um, yeah, and it's all about like vigilantism um, and race relations. Now, <laughs> the series starts with a depiction of a real-life event, which I remember watching this as it was happening, the, the, the episode. I watched the episode, and then the Twitter conversation afterwards was, this actually happened. So, there was uh, an event in 1921, May 31st, night of May 31st, 1921, called the Tulsa Race Massacre, or the Tulsa Race Riot. Or better known as the Black Wall Street Massacre. So there was an affluent area of Tulsa. The after was the wealthiest black community in the world, the United States, called Black Wall Street, and it was utterly, utterly destroyed by racial <sighs> violence in America. I will send you. There's a Wikipedia article, but there's also another article that that came out after after Watchmen, and that episode shows that incident happening and it was totally new to everybody apart from people that knew you know the deepest darkest history but it is totally ignored by oklahoma it was totally ignored by oklahoma state for a long time um and it was unknown to vast majority of american citizens which is insane because it was it is known as the single worst incident of racial violence in american history and it was swept under the rug um, the reports at the time were that 36 people died, but then later estimates are ranging from 150 to 200 black people to 700, wow. to 75 to 100 to 150 to 300 people dying. Um, 800 plus people were known to be injured. We don't, they don't know the exact thing. And the perpetrators were the white American mob and the United States National Guard. Um, so, yeah, the this event... Stop the world, I want to get off. Yeah, so this event was portrayed in this, this episode of Watchmen. And the whole season, even though it is about superheroes, or, you know, this alternate history of superheroes, much like the original graphic novel, which deals with Cold War. I don't know, if you read the graphic novel... Um, no. No, I thoroughly recommend it. It's I one of don't the... usually read graphic novels. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, that's fine. I just just saying, like it is. It is all about the Cold War, um, and it deals with uh, the place of America and Russia and uh, in the Cold War in 1985. It's like this alternate history of superheroes, and it's truly fascinating. And then the TV series kind of takes this idea and puts it in the context of racism in 2019 and white supremacy in 2019 and police violence on black people in 2019 and it is truly truly astonishing and it the ep the series deals with it in a very very complicated way but in a truly empathetic way and is totally compelling and totally worth watching and if that hasn't sold if my description of the series hasn't sold you on it the cast list. So we have Regina King, Don Johnson, Tim Blake Nelson, Yahoo Abdul Mateen II, the second, um, 
Lewis Gossett Jr. is in it. Um, Gene Smart. Hong Chow is amazing. And Jeremy Irons is in it. Wow. And the music, the music is done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Um, in perhaps their finest, I think it's one of the, it's, it's their best soundtrack work since, since Social Network. Um, they, there's a cover of Life on Mars, David Bowie's Life on Mars, which is utterly, utterly I think haunting. I've listened to that. I think I've sent you that. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it, it aired on HBO. Funnily enough, we, we've been talking about HBO. But HBO, like I said last year, launched this series and it... If you are to take anything away from this conversation about Gone with the Wind, I think it is worth looking for other voices in current day media that present a point of view and present a point of view that you are not used to. And I think Damon Lindelof's Watchmen TV series prevents, pre- presents this point of view quite compellingly. I mean, it is an alternate America. Um, for example, Robert Redford was is a third or fourth time president of the United States as a democrat and um that's not necessarily a good thing uh the show presents and um it it shows reparations to victims of racial violence in america which you can argue needs to happen anyway but it presents what happens uh, when you know reparations and i think like, like i said i think between this and the wrong the jewels song walking in the snow i think it is worth seeking out these other voices i know we've spoken about jordan peele um there are other a thousand other black voices that need to be heard we, we said spike lee his his new film uh the five bloods which i haven't got around to watching yet apparently is is a worthy follow-up to black Klansman. um so it, it, if you ask i have to take just anything... recently watched uh black Klansman. Did it make it's you angry the... at the, the end? Did the end make you angry? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, they, if, 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 you, if the listeners haven't seen Black Klansman, watch Black Klansman and then be utterly, utterly, utterly horrified at the end. Um, so if you want to take anything from this conversation about Gone with the Wind, it should be that I think we sh- you should be looking at other forms of media that present points of view that you aren't accustomed to, that is away from the majorly white frame of view of this world that we are seeing um like i said wrong the jewels this wrong the jewels song and the rest of their album kind of deals with that in a very very strong way i think the watchman tv series yes okay is written and created by a white writer but his staff room was full of female and black writers so he did the right thing in presenting this diversity and having a voice for these these he used his platform this white privilege in the right way um and like i said jordan peele spike lee those are only two of the names i can think of off the top of my head but like i said there are a thousand other more um uh yeah fe- there's a female director uh nia da costa she is done a remake slash sequel to Candyman, which is due to come out at some point this year a black female director di- directing a horror film when was the last time we had a female a female director direct a horror for an American horror film, let alone a black female director for that matter? So it is worth having these voices seeking out these voices out there and giving them using your position as a as a in the audience to give these you know give these a platform and to 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 help it along to to use your influence as a general audience and go 
hey, I watched this. You should watch this as well. And that is the only way, as well as seeking out this context and actually doing the reading, that we can kind of move past what we are going through at the moment in my view and i don't know if danny feels the same so i'm gonna yes, you let do. her so yeah um absolutely absolutely agree very well said um i think yeah i think it's important to, to come out of the bubble that we're, we're, everyone is has lived in for i don't know how many years because I I honestly didn't realize until quite recently that we still live in a very racist world. I didn't realize until it had to amount to this. It had to escalate to the point where you had Nazi salute in Parliament Square in London. Um, so in order to understand, we need to read more and find out other other media outlets and other voices that we're not familiar with. So yeah, yeah. thanks for that, Nick. Yeah um so that i think about does us for our conversation on gone with the wind we have managed to just about go under the length of the film uh this recording <laughs> um <laughs> so um yeah i think that kind of wraps us up um before i kind of ask danny where she can find you i just want to take this opportunity to say thank you everybody for listening um and please please email us and just let us know your thoughts on yes, one with the please, wind please please let us know and thank um, you again yeah thanks yeah. for me for listening um so danny where can we find you on the internet um you can find me on twitter at uh Kino joan and my website is kinojohn.co.uk um you can find me on the internet so i'm on twitter at nick s chandler and on my website superatomovision.com we have our twitter account at kinotomic um so we are posting up pieces and stuff on there comments about films and um thursday's episode is i'm thinking it's jason and the argonauts and troy um which Possibly, yeah you is, think you're right is an episode which i'm really looking forward for everybody to listen to so um yeah, yeah stay uh, tuned stay tuned for stay tuned for thursday so it is a thank you um for listening from me thank you for listening from me too see you next time